Chapter 10 of The Frozen Pirate. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Marilyn Rakes. The Frozen Pirate by William Clark Russell. Chapter 10 Another Startling Discovery. This hatch formed the entrance to the cabin, and there was no other road to it that I could see. If I wanted to use it, I must first scrape away the snow, but unhappily I had left my knife in the boat, and was without any instrument that would serve me to scrape with. I thought of breaking the beer bottle that was in my pocket and scratching with a piece of the glass, but before doing this it occurred to me to search the body on the starboard side. I approached him as if he were alive and murderously fierce, and I own I did not like to touch him. He resembled the figure of a giant molded in snow. In life he must have been six feet and a half tall. The snow had bloated him, and though he leaned he stood as high as I, who was of a tolerable stature. The snow was on his beard and mustache and on his hair, but these features were merged and compacted into the snow on his coat, and as his cap came low and was covered with snow too, he, with the little fragment of countenance that remained, the flesh whereof had the color and toughness of the skin of a drum that has been well beaten, submitted as terrible an object as mortal sight ever rested on. I say I did not like to touch him, and one reason was I feared he would tumble and though I know not why I should have dreaded this, yet the apprehension of it so worked in me that for some time it held me idly staring at him. But I could not enter the cabin without first scraping the snow from the companion door, and the cold, after I had stood a few moments inactive, was so bitter as to set me craving for shelter. So I put my hand upon the body, and discovered it, as I might have foreseen, frozen to the hardness of steel. His coat, if I may call that a coat which resembled a robe of snow, fell to within a few inches of the deck. Steadying the body with one hand, I heartily tweaked the coat with the other, hoping thus to rupture the ice upon it, in doing which I slipped and fell on my back, and in falling gave a convulsive kick which, striking the feet of the figure, dislodged them from their frozen hold of the deck, and down it fell with a mighty bang alongside of me, and with a loud crackling noise like the rending of a sheet of silk. I was not hurt, and sprang to my feet with the uh, alacrity of fright, and looking at the body saw that it had managed by its fall much better than my hands could have compassed. For the snow shroud was cracked and crumbled, Slabs of it had broken away, leaving the cloth of the coat visible, and what best pleased me was the sight of the end of a hanger forking out from the skirt of the coat. Yet to come at it so as to draw the blade from its scabbard required an intolerable exertion of strength. The clothes on this body were indeed like a suit of mail. I never could have believed that frost served cloth so. At last I managed to pull the coat clear of the hilt of the hanger. The blade was stuck, but after I had tugged a bit it slipped out, and I found it a good piece of steel. The corpse was habited in jackboots, 
a coat of coarse thick cloth lined with flannel, under this a kind of blouse or doublet of red cloth, confined by a belt with leathern loops for pistols. His apparel gave me no clue to the age he belonged to. It was no better, indeed, than a sort of masquerading attire, as though the fashions of more than one country, and perhaps of more than one age, had gone to the habiting of him. He looked a burly, immense creature, as he lay upon the deck in the same bent attitude in which he had stood at the rail, and so dreadful was his face, with a singular diabolical expression of leering malice, caused by the lids of his eyes being half-closed, that having taken one peep I had no mind to repeat it, though I was above ten minutes wrestling with his cloak and hanger before I had the weapon fairly in my hand. I walked to the companion and fell to scraping the snow away from it. "'Twas like scratching at mortar between bricks, but I worked hard, and presently, with the point of the hanger, felt the crevice twixt the door and its jam, after which it was not long before I had carved the door out of its plate of ice and snow. The wind was now blowing a fresh gale, and the howling aloft was extremely melancholy and dismal. I could not see the ocean, but I heard it thundering with a hollow roaring note, and the sharp reports and distant sullen crashing noises, with nearer convulsions within the ice, were very frequent. My labor warmed me, but it also increased my hunger. While I hacked and scraped at the snow, I was considering whether I should come across anything fit to eat in the ship, and if not, what was I to do? Here was a vessel assuredly not less than fifty or sixty years old, and even supposing she was almost new when she fell in with the ice, the date of her disaster would still carry her back half a century, so that, and certainly there was much in the appearance of the body on the rocks to warrant the conjecture, she would have been sepulchred and fossilized for fifty years. What, then, in the form of provisions proper for human food, such as even a famine-driven stomach could deal with, was I likely to find in her? Would not her crew have eaten her bare, devoured the very heart out of her, before they perished? These thoughts weighed heavily in me, but I toiled on nevertheless, and having cleared the door of the snow that bound it, I prized it apart with the hanger and then dragged at it but the snow on the deck would not let it open far, and as there was room for me to squeeze through, I did not stop to scrape the obstruction away. A flight of steps sank into the darkness of the interior, and a cold, strange smell floated up, with something of a dry earthiness of flavor and a mingling of leather and timber. I fell back a pace to let something of this smell exhale before I ventured into an atmosphere that had been hermetically bottled by the ice in that cabin since the hour when this little door was last closed. Superstition was active in me again, and when I peered into the blackness at the bottom of the hatch, I felt as might a schoolboy on the threshold of a haunted room in which he is to be locked up as punishment. I put my foot on the ladder and descended very slowly indeed, my inclination being strong the other way, and I kept on looking downwards in a state of ridiculous fright as though at any moment I should be seized by the leg, being in too much confusion of mind to consider that it was impossible anything living could be below, whilst a ghostly shadow could not catch hold of me so as to cause me to feel its grasp. But then, if fear could reason, it would cease to be fear." 
On reaching the bottom, I remained standing close against the ladder, striving to see into what manner of place I was arrived. The glare of the whiteness of the decks and rocks hung upon my eyes like a kind of blindness charged with fires of several colors, and I could not obtain the faintest glimpse of any part of this interior outside the sphere of the little square of hazy light which lay upon the deck at the foot of the steps. The darkness, indeed, was so deep that I concluded this was no more than a narrow well formed of bulkheads, and that the cabin was beyond, and led to by a door in the bulkhead. To test this conjecture, I extended my arms in a groping posture and stepped a pace forward, feeling to right and left, till, having gone five or six paces from the ladder, my fingers touched something cold, and, feeling it, I passed my hand down what I instantly knew by the projection of the nose and the roughness of hair on the upper lip to be a human face. A little reflection might have prepared me for this, but I had not reflected, at least in this direction, and was therefore not prepared, and the horrible thrill of that black chill contact went in an agony through my nerves, and I burst into a violent perspiration. I backed away with all my hair astir, and then shot up the ladder as if the devil had been behind me, and when I reached the deck I was trembling so violently that I had to lean against the companion lest my knees should give way. Never in all my time had I received such a fright as this, but then I had gone to it in a fright, and was exactly in the state of mind to be terrified out of my senses. My soul had been rendered sick and weak within me by my mental and corporeal suffering. My loneliness, too, was dreadful, and the wilder and more scaring, too, for this my unhappy association with the dead. The shrieking and the rigging was like the tongue given the, by endless packs of hunting phantom wolves, and the growling and crackling noises of the ice in all directions would have made one coming new to this desolate scene suppose that the island of ice was full of fierce beasts." but needs must when old nick drives i had either to find courage to enter the schooner and search her and so stand to come across the means to prolong my life and perhaps procure my deliverance or perish of famine and frost on deck the companion door was small and being scarce more than a jar i was not surprised that only a very faint light entered by it if the top were removed i doubted not i should be able to get a view of the cabin enough to show me where the windows or portholes were. So I went to work with the hanger again, insensibly obtaining a little stock of courage from the mere brandishing of it. In half an hour I had chipped and cut away the ice around the companion, and then found it to be one of those old-fashioned clumsy hatch-covers formerly used in certain kinds of Dutch ships, namely a box with a shoulder-shaped lid. This lid, though heavy, and fitting with the tongue, I managed to unship, on which the full square of the hatch lay open to the sky. The light gave me heart. Once more I descended. After a few moments the bewildering dazzle of the snow faded off my sight, and I could see very distinctly. The cabin was a small room. The forward part lay in shadow, but I could distinguish the outline of the mainmast amidships of the bulkhead there. In the center of this cabin was a small square table supported by iron pins that pierced through stanchions in such a manner that the table could at will be raised to the ceiling and there left for the conveniency of space. At this table, 
seated upon short, quaintly wrought benches and immediately facing each other, were two men. They were incomparably more lifelike than the frozen figures. The one whose back was upon the hatchway ladder, being the man whose face I had stroked, sat upright in the posture of a person about to start up, both hands upon the rim of the table, and his countenance raised as if, in a sudden terror and agony of death, he had darted a look to God. So inimitably expressive of life was his attitude, that though I knew him to be a frozen body as perished as if he had died with Adam or Noah, I was sensible of a breathless wonder in me that the affrighted start with which it seemed to be rising from the table was not continued, that, in short, he did not spring to his feet with the cry that you seemed to hear in his posture. The other figure lay over the table with his face buried in his arms. He wore no covering to his head, which was bald, yet his hair on either side was plentiful and lay upon his arms, and his beard fluffing up about his buried face gave him an uncommon shaggy appearance. The other had on a round fur cap with lappets for the ears. His body was muffled in a thick ash-colored coat. His hair was also abundant, curling long and black down his back. His cheeks were smooth manifestly through nature rather than the razor, and the ends of a small black mustache were twisted up to his eyes. These were the only occupants of the cabin, which their presence rendered terribly ghastly and strange. There was perhaps something in keeping with the icy spell of death upon this vessel in the figure of the man who was bowed over the table, for he looked as though he slept, but the other mocked the view with a spectrum of the fever and passion of life. You would have sworn he had beheld the skeleton hand of the shadow reaching out of the dimness for him, that he had started back with a curse and cry of horror and expired in the very agony of his affrighted recoil. The interior was extremely plain, the bulkheads of a mahogany color, the decks bare, and nothing in the form of an ornament saving a silver crucifix hanging by a nail to the trunk of the mainmast, and a cage with a frozen bird of gorgeous plumage suspended to the bulkhead near the hatch. A small lanthorn of an old pattern dangled over the table, and I noticed that it contained two or three inches of candle. Abaft the hatchway was a door on the starboard side, which I opened, and found a narrow, dark passage. I could not pierce it with my eye beyond a few feet, but perceiving within this range the outline of a little door, I concluded that here were the berths in which the master and his mates slept. There was nothing to be done in the dark, and I bitterly lamented that I had left my tinder-box and flint in the boat, for then I could have lighted the candle in the lanthorn. Perhaps, thought I, one of those figures may have a tinder-box upon him. Custom was now somewhat hardening me. Moreover, I was spurred on by mortal anxiety to discover if there was any kind of food to be met with in the vessel. So I stepped up to the figure whose face I had touched and felt in his pockets, but neither on him nor on the other did I find what I wanted. Though I was not a little astonished, to discover in the pockets of the occupants of so small and humble a ship as this schooner a fine gold watch as rich as the one I had brought away from the man on the rocks, and more elegant in shape, a gold snuff-box set with diamonds, several rings of beauty and value lying loose in the breeches pocket of the man whose face was hidden, a handful of Spanish pieces in gold, handkerchiefs of fine silk, and other articles, 
as if indeed these fellows had been overhauling a parcel of booty, and then carelessly returned the contents to their pockets. But what I needed was the means of obtaining a light, so after casting about, I thought I would search the body on deck, and went to it, and to my great satisfaction discovered what I had wanted in the first pocket I dipped my hand into, though I had to rip open the mouth of it away from the snow with the hanger. I returned to the cabin and lighted the candle and carried the lanthorn into the black passage or corridor. There were four small doors belonging to as many berths. I opened the first and entered a compartment that smelt so intolerably stale and fusty that I had to come into the passage again and fetch a few breaths to humor my nose to the odor. As in the cabin, however, so here I found this noxiousness of air was not caused by putrefaction of any tainting qualities of a vegetable or animal kind, but by the deadness of the pent-up air itself, as the foulness of bilge-water is owing to its being imprisoned from air in the bottom of the hold. I held up the lanthorn and looked about me. A glance or two satisfied me that I was in a room that had been appropriated to the steward and his mates. A number of dark objects, which on inspection I found to be hams, were stowed snugly away in battens under the ceiling or upper deck. A cask half full of flour stood in a corner. Near it lay a large coarse sack in which was a quantity of biscuit, a piece of which I bit and found it as hard as flint and tasteless, but not in the least degree moldy. There were four shelves running athwart ships full of glass, knives and forks, dishes and so forth, some of the glass very choice and elegant, and many of the dishes and plates also very fine, fit for the greatest nobleman's table. Under the lower shelf on the deck lay a sack of what I believed to be black stones, until after turning one or two of them about, it came upon me that they were, or had been, I should say, potatoes. Not to tease you with too many particulars under this head, let me briefly say that in this larder or steward's room I found, among other things, several cheeses, a quantity of candles, a great earthenware pot full of peas, several pounds of tobacco, about thirty lemons, along with two small casks and three or four jars, manifestly of spirits, but of what kind I could not tell. I took a stout, sharp knife from one of the shelves, and pulling down one of the hams tried to cut it, but I might as well have striven to slice a piece of marble. I attempted next to cut a cheese, but this was frozen as hard as the ham. The lemons, candles, and tobacco had the same astonishing quality of stoniness, and nothing yielded to the touch but the flour. I laid hold of one of the jars, and thought to pull the stopper out, but it was frozen hard in the hole it fitted and I was five minutes hammering it loose. When it was out, I inserted a steel, used for the sharpening of knives, and found the contents solid ice. Nor was there the faintest smell to tell me what the spirit or wine was. Never before did plenty offer itself in so mocking a shape. It was the very irony of abundance, substantial ghostliness, and a barmacede's feast to my aching stomach. But there was biscuit not unconquerable by teeth, used to the fare of the sea-life, and picking up a whole one I sat me down on the edge of a cask and fell a-munching. One reflection, however, comforted me, namely that this petrification by freezing had kept the victual sweet. I was sure that there was little here that might not be thawed into relishable and nourishing food and drink by a good fire. 
The sight of these stores took such a weight off my mind that no felon reprieved from death could feel more elated than I. My forebodings had come to naught in this regard, and here, for the moment, my grateful spirits were content to stop. End of chapter 10